Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I am filling in for Dr. Chris on Loveline all week. I will be answering your questions and offering you advice. For those of you that don't know me, I am the host of VH1 Couples Therapy with Dr. Jen, also VH1 Family Therapy with Dr. Jen. You may have heard me on the Dr. Jen Show on other radio shows. I'm an author. I've written a few books. The Relationship Fix, Dr. Jen's Six-Step Guide to Improving Communication, Connection, and Intimacy, Super Baby, 12 Ways to Give Your Child a Head Start in the First Three Years, The A to Z Guide to Raising Happy, Confident Kids, and a children's book called Rockin' Babies, which I co-wrote with my mom, Cynthia Weil, a Grammy Award-winning songwriter. I also have a column in InStyle Magazine called Hump Day with Dr. Jen, where I offer sex, love, and relationship advice. I am a mother of twins, but most importantly, I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and I'm here to answer all of your questions. No topic is off limits. You can send me an email if you've got a question and need advice at askdrjen at drjenman.com. Two ends on Jen, two ends on man, or just post them on my social media. You can find me on my social at drjenman, D-R-J-E-N-N-M-A-N-N. And look, these are weird times. They are scary times. And a lot of people are quite literally losing sleep over it. And if you are someone who has been struggling with your sleep during this pandemic, you're not alone. If you are someone whose kids are staying up all night, again, you are in good company. A study came out on July 17th, which happens to be my birthday, called sleep quality in times of COVID-19 pandemic. And what the researchers found is that 70% of patients reported having at least one sleep difficulty. So why are people struggling so much with their sleep right now? Well, there are a lot of good reasons. First of all, the boundaries of school and work have changed. Sleep schedules 
tend to follow that kind of lack of structure. Some people are really struggling with mental health issues, depression, anxiety has skyrocketed, and those impact sleep enormously. And sometimes people don't even recognize that they are depressed or anxious. And so even low-grade depression or anxiety can impact sleep. People are also spending more time in front of their screens for Zoom meetings. We're watching more TV. The news is anxiety-provoking. A lot of people are not exercising. Again, that lack of structure of what we're used to. A lot of people are out of work, so they don't have the normal structure of work. Also, people's sleep and wake times are erratic. We're not being as consistent about going to sleep at the same time and waking up at the same time. We've got more stress than ever, and we've got this horrible bad news overload. But sleep is really important, and it's particularly important during a pandemic. We need sleep to optimize our immune systems to potentially fight this virus, and a lack of sleep can really exacerbate any mental health issues we struggle with, like that depression or anxiety that I mentioned earlier. It can also make us cranky, which increases conflict with our partners, our kids, our loved ones, anyone that comes into contact with us. You're grumpy, you're irritable, you take it out on everyone. Also, a lot of kids right now are up all night. They're calling this the vampire generation. And since the pandemic has started, a lot of younger kids and teens have been staying up all night and sleeping during the day. They are going to school on Zoom. Some of the schools aren't even requiring that they show their faces so they can log on and go back to sleep. They're also doing late night Snapchats and they're doing sleepovers via Zoom. I know my kids have done lots of them. And this generation is just staying up later and later. And a lot of parents are trying to be easygoing. Parents are saying, you know, hey, we're in a pandemic. You know, I'm going to let my kids break the rules, which I totally get. But when sleep suffers, we all tend to suffer. And while all of these habits are really fun, they're not necessarily in the best interests of growing minds and growing bodies. So what do we need to do to turn this around? Well, first of all, we need to understand that good sleep hygiene is really important. We need to be going to sleep and waking up at the same time every day. We need to start the day with some sunshine because that regulates your circadian rhythm. It tells your brain when you're supposed to be awake and when you're supposed to be asleep. So starting the day with some sunshine, I always do that. I open up the drapes and spend a little time looking out the window to wake myself up. Also, change out of your pajamas to start your day. Even if no one's going to see you, even if you can block out the Zoom on your meeting and not have people actually see you, or if you're not doing any meetings or you're not working right now, still make sure to change out of your pajamas, even if it's just into sweatpants. It makes a difference in your mental state. Don't work in bed or lying down where you could fall asleep because naps right now are the enemy of good sleep. Stop looking at your screens 30 minutes before going to bed to avoid that blue light that sends a message to your brain that it's time to be awake. Also, add meditation to your day, especially at night. I do a meditation every single night to help me fall asleep. I found that to be super helpful as someone who used to struggle with insomnia a lot. And make sure that your bedroom is conducive to sleep, that you don't have a lot of light coming in, that you keep the temperature cool, that your bed is comfortable, all that kind of good, cozy stuff. And avoid sleeping pills. A lot of the time people think, oh, I can just take a sleeping pill, but they're addictive and they actually create poor quality sleep. So it's really important in terms of your own 
self-care, the care of your family, that you really make sure that everyone is getting enough sleep. Right now, children and their families all over Southern California are going to bed hungry. Channel Q and Radio.com have an easier way for you to help feed local students and their families. Text the word NEED to 76278 to give a buck and put food in the mouths of a hungry kid and their loved ones. Just $1 to make a big difference. Learn more about Feed Our Families in our socials and at wearechannelq.com. Coming up next, I'm answering a question from a woman whose husband kept a shocking secret from her. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm filling in for Dr. Chris on Loveline all week long. I'll be answering your questions and offering you advice. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, at Dr. Jen Mann. Two ends on Jen, two ends on Mann. I have here an email from someone who we'll call Kim. And Kim writes me and says, let me first say I love you and love your shows. I wish you were on the air nightly. You've truly helped my life. Okay, so here's my story. Thank you, Kim. Uh, my husband and I have gotten married last September. Things have been rough. When we got engaged, he kept a secret from me that he used to be married. His ex-wife told me through Facebook. I was so devastated that he didn't tell me himself and kept this secret from me. She just wanted to be spiteful. Sometimes I have a feeling that he wants me to just get over it, but it takes time. I think he should have done things to make it up to me, but hasn't. Fast forward, his mom got sick and died five months before we got married. I feel as though he's in a dark space and he feels like he's out of control. When he becomes dark, he may block me out when we're trying to talk. He becomes disrespectful, like walking away when I'm talking. Also, he's having health issues as well. He has a lot of anger. He's yelling, being irritable. He leaves the house. If I try to force him to stay, he may push me out of the way. I believe he's taking it it all out on me, which he shouldn't because I'm the one who's always been there for him. How do I handle this? I want my marriage to be successful. I think the thing that bothers me most is finding out that he was married and that his ex-wife was the one to tell me. Sometimes I bring it up when we argue and may have insecurities about it. Okay, Kim, you've got a few issues that are going on here. The first one, and I think that this is the most significant, at least for you, is that your husband kept such a huge, significant secret from you. When someone we love lies to us about something that deep and significant, it makes us question everything else. I'm sure that you can't help but wonder what else he has kept from you. The fact that he's moody, irritable, and disrespectful is only icing on the cake. And it sounds like when you try to talk to him about things that are on your mind, he just stonewalls you. He blocks you out. He walks away. He refuses to talk about things. Now, understand that the studies show that stonewalling, a guy named John Gottman did studies of couples, and he's able to predict divorce with like 97, 98% accuracy. And he says that one of the biggest harbingers of doom and divorce is stonewalling. 
So this has to stop. Your husband has to stop doing this. It is hurting your marriage. When it comes to getting past this huge lie, first of all, repair work has to be done in order to help you recover from it. This was a huge secret that was kept from you. When it comes to repairing ruptures in a relationship or a lie like this, I always look for the four R's. The first is remorse, a heartfelt apology that comes from a true realization that he hurt you and understanding the hurt that he has caused. Just saying I'm sorry is not enough. Those are just words. A meaningful apology verbalizes the understanding of the pain that's been caused and actually shows regret for the actions that were taken. The second is responsibility. Taking responsibility is showing ownership of the actions, and it doesn't seem like he's taken responsibility from what you've described. And it's also, it's understanding the impact, even if the pain was unintentional. And when you take responsibility, you let the other person know that you understand the gravity of the situation you caused and you recognize what you did wrong. It's very hard to trust someone not to lie to you again if they don't understand the total impact of what they did this time. The third is recognition. It's important to provide a forum to talk through what happened and process everyone's feelings. Your husband can't keep just walking away and stonewalling you. When people know that their pain has been heard, it helps them to heal. And it's very clear to me from your email that you have not felt heard. The fourth is remedy. The person making amends must repair the damage that's been caused as part of making the amends and take action to avoid repeating the behavior. Having a plan of action that addresses the issue that caused the person to behave so badly is a good place to start. Attending group therapy or going to rehab as an example, if there's a situation that calls for it. In your situation, I think it's important that your husband gets some therapy to address the underlying issues that made him lie to you. Clearly, he has a lot of shame. He was probably afraid that you would leave him. He was afraid that you would see him differently. But those are his issues. But now they become your issues because of the way he has chosen to handle this. In my experience, unless those four R's are actually implemented, it becomes incredibly difficult to heal and to move on. And look, in the bigger picture, it seems that your husband is very depressed. It seems like he's having some serious mood swings. A lot of the time with men, depression shows up as what we call an agitated depression. And that shows up as irritability, like you're describing. And I think that he is stuck in his grief. It sounds like he has medical issues that are going on. We're all even more stressed. We're in a pandemic, so I'm sure that's affecting him too. But I would recommend getting him seen by a therapist and evaluated. And sometimes if a guy like him is not open to seeing a therapist, he might be open to a grief group where that could kind of ease him into the therapy space or talking to an internist that he really respects who can recommend therapy him or herself. But there are a lot of different ways to get someone in therapy. Also, sometimes to say, hey, would you come into couples therapy with me to support me? I feel like I'm not sure what to do to be a better wife to you. And I feel like I'm failing you. So I hope that that helps, Kim, and I hope that you're able to get him some help. It sounds like he really needs it. Sliding into our DMs is brought to you by Trojan Condoms. It's a big, sexy world out there, and we want you to explore it with confidence.
Coming up next, I'm answering a question from a woman whose childhood sexual abuse has been destroying her relationship. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm a licensed psychotherapist. I'll be filling in for Dr. Chris on Loveline all week long. I'll be answering your questions and offering you advice. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Snapchat at Dr. Jen Mann. Two ends on Jen, two ends on man. You can find information about how to email me your questions there as well. So I'm going to get you a question from Sarah who is struggling with something that unfortunately is all too common these days. And she writes and says, I'm a huge fan of yours. I've seen you on TV shows. I will tell you a little bit about myself. When I was a little girl, I was sexually molested by my grandpa for years. I moved in with my aunt and uncle since they took me in. I was physically abused by my aunt a couple of times. During the process, I have PTSD and depression. My question is, when I'm in a relationship and have sex, I have a hard time reaching climax. Is stopping in the middle of this normal for people who have been sexually abused? My relationships don't last long because the guy can't seem to handle it. Sarah. Well, first of all, Sarah, I'm so so sorry that you have gone through this. No child should ever have to go through what you have gone through. But unfortunately, so many do. It's been estimated that one in five girls and one in six boys have been the victim of sexual abuse. And what we do know is in situations where one or both partners in a relationship have experienced childhood sexual abuse, it tends to take a lot of therapy to work through the trauma. Because sexual abuse involves unwanted or inappropriate touch or exposure, usually from people who the child is supposed to be able to trust, it can create a whole host of other problems down the line. It's not uncommon for survivors of sexual abuse to act out by engaging in casual sex. When sex and intimacy come together, a lot of the time survivors can be really triggered when it comes to their unresolved issues. You know, intimacy and sex coming together can be very complicated anyway, but when you've experienced childhood sexual trauma, it becomes even more complicated. Some of the common responses to sexual abuse when it comes to sex are flashbacks, discomfort with certain areas of the body or certain sex acts, hypersexual behavior or low sexual arousal, difficulty reaching orgasm, so Sarah, you are not alone, disassociating or engaging emotionally during sex, in other words, kind of just pulling back and not being really present, the need to be in control, and difficulty trusting a partner. And by the way, rape has similar long-term effects, and I originally started my career working for what was then the Los Angeles Commission on Assaults Against Women as a rape and domestic violence counselor. They're now known as Peace Over Violence. They've since changed their name. And that was really amazing work that I had the opportunity to do. And we got very well trained about sexual abuse. And one of the things that we know is that eight out of 10 of rapes are committed by someone who knows the victim. And it's been shown that 3% of men have been raped. We tend to think, oh, it's just women, but a man can be raped as well. And members of the LGBT community are 15 times more likely to be raped than others. 
understand that getting professional support is of the utmost importance. I can't stress that enough. Getting therapy to deal with this trauma is the single most important thing that you can do. So Sarah, I hope you're listening and I hope that you are willing to go to therapy, ideally with a therapist who has some kind of specialty in sexual trauma. But in addition to therapy, and I understand this is not in place of, but in addition to therapy, there are a few things that you can do. The first is to connect with your body. When a person experiences sexual trauma, they learn to disassociate. In other words, a lot of the time people describe, I left my body, I was hovering above watching what was going on, or I couldn't feel my body, I couldn't feel what was going on. Take five minutes every day to do a body scan meditation to get more in touch with your body. The second thing is try not to spectator. What that means is when you spectator is you're no longer in the moment of the physical sensations you're feeling. It's when you and when you experience trauma, you're more likely to get out of the moment of pleasure and get in your head. This can come in the form of self-criticism or just plain old disconnection. And even if you haven't been sexually traumatized, sometimes we find ourselves spectating when it comes to sex. The third is talk with your partner about the trauma and your triggers. You know, sometimes a certain smell or being touched in a certain way or a certain place can trigger memories. And it sounds like, Sarah, that you haven't had the most gentle, kind, compassionate, understanding partners, although it's also possible that maybe you haven't explained to them why you're stopping in the middle of sex or why you're having trouble having an orgasm. And that's an important part of having a mutual sexual experience and also even recovering from the trauma that you have experienced. And your partner needs to know what's going on in order to avoid doing something that could scare you or cause a flashback or to know what it is that that specifically triggers you. Then the fourth thing is focus on pleasure over orgasm. Take the pressure off of yourself to have an orgasm. It's not uncommon, like I mentioned, for survivors to have trouble having an orgasm, especially when they're in the middle of processing a trauma. Sometimes when you get into therapy, things get worse before they get better, but please don't let that stop you from going to therapy. You know, feeling pressure in general when it comes to orgasms tends to scare them away. And it's important to try to relax as much as possible and allow yourself just to enjoy pleasurable sensations. The other thing is take it slow. Even if you and partner have been having sex for years, you may need to pull it back and slow things down. Feeling in control of your sexual experience is one of the most important things you can do when it comes to recovering from a trauma like this. And then last but not least, prioritize self-care. Make sure that you're eating well, getting enough sleep, exercising. There's a tendency to want to escape into drugs or alcohol to numb yourself, but that does more harm than good. And it also tends to exacerbate the depression and the anxiety. And that is quite harmful. And when you avoid those feelings, they don't just go away. They tend to build up and harm you even more. Understand that it is possible to have a great sex life even after trauma. But in order to get yourself there, you got to have great communication, a willingness to work on yourself, and a compassionate partner. And it sounds like, Sarah, that you haven't had enough of those, but I also think that you have to have compassion for yourself, and I hope that you're able to have that. 
Coming up next, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm tipping in for Dr. Chris while he is on vacation. When we come back from break, I'll be answering a question from a woman who is running out of patience with her boyfriend's nasty ways. Hi, I'm Dr. Jen Mann, and I'll be filling in for Dr. Chris on Loveline all week long. I'll be answering your questions and offering you advice. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and you can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Snapchat at Dr. Jen Mann, two ends on Jen, two ends on man. So I've got an email here from someone who has a very interesting question. She asks, when is enough enough? I mean, hey, you know, we've all been there. When do you stop believing that change is coming when it hasn't happened yet and stop giving chances for the supposed change? I've seen small change, but it's been more transactional versus long-lasting change. A few nights ago, he got angry again and got nasty again. To hurt me, he said something about my child. I'm sick of the I can't control it, and I'm working on changing that. And I'm going to call her Jane Doe. So, you know, Jane, when he says, I'm working on that, what does he mean? What is he working on? How is he working on it? Is he in therapy? Is he getting anchor management? Without a concrete plan, there will be no change. You know, in AA, they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. If he's not doing anything differently, you cannot expect any different results. And I also get the feeling that in your situation, there are no repercussions if he doesn't change, that all he has to do is say, I'm working on it. I can't control it. I'm going to change that. But there are no consequences. If he treats you poorly, if he insults your child, if he does God knows what else he's doing that is upsetting you, then you just tell him, but you're not leaving. You're not withholding time with you when you're valuable. And if someone treats you poorly, they don't deserve time with you. So I think it's unlikely that he's going to change if there are no repercussions and he's not doing anything differently. The other thing for you to really consider and to look at is how is all of this affecting your child? I don't know how old your kid is, but I'm sure that this is being picked up on him or her. And that are you asking yourself, what kind of example of a relationship are you setting? And also, what are the messages that you are teaching your child about how you should be treated? Because your partner is not just a role model for your child of what a relationship looks like, but also on how you should be treated. And if he's yelling at you, you can bet that there's going to be a day where your kid is going to be yelling at you just like he does. So to answer your question, you should not expect him to change at this point. He has proven that he is either unwilling or incapable of changing. But the true question, the real question is, now what are you going to do with that? Now that you know that he's unlikely to change, are you going to stay? Do you value yourself? How long are you going to stay? And I understand that sometimes financially a person can't leave or we're in the middle of a pandemic. It can be dangerous. It could be scary. But I think it's really important that if you're not ready to leave, 
that you at least start putting things in place to get yourself ready to leave. I would recommend that you get yourself therapy so that you can build up your strength and your resolve, that you increase your support system. Hopefully he has not isolated you in any way and that you are able to reach out to friends and to family and to let them know what's going on, that you may need a place to stay. It sounds like you guys live together. And I think that your job right now is to make boundaries with him and to build up your strength and build up your resolve and prepare yourself to leave. So I hope that um, that things change for the better, but I just don't see a pathway to that without something really significant changing. You know, it's too often that I hear from people who tell me something terrible that their partner keeps doing over and over again, and they ask if they're going to change, but there's no plan of action for that change. And this seems like one of those situations. It just doesn't sound like there's any plan of action that is going to create meaningful change. So you're going to have to assume moving forward that nothing is going to change for more than a moment. And when it changes, it always goes back. So coming up next, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm sitting in for Dr. Chris while he is on vacation. I'm here with you on Loveline. When we come back from this break, I'll be talking about a new study that examines why men are more likely to refuse to wear face masks. What is it about male psychology? I'm going to get into it. Hi, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and I'll be filling in for Dr. Chris on Loveline all week. I'll be answering your questions and offering you advice. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Snapchat at Dr. Jen Mann. Two ends on Jen, two ends on man. You can find information about how to email me your questions there as well. So I'm going to talk a little bit about a very interesting story. It, according to researchers at Middlesex University in London, men have more problems wearing masks than women. Dr. Valerio Capraro, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, said that he noticed it more when walking through the city, couples where females were wearing masks and the men were not. And he paired this with U.S. researchers where they asked almost 2,500 participants about mask wearing, and they found that men were more likely to find masks to be shameful, a sign of weakness, or not cool. And I put that in quotes. Those are not my words. Those are the words of the men in the study. And they reported that even after they read that men were at a higher risk than women of dying from the coronavirus. So the researcher explained that traits like self-reliance, individualism, strength, and courage typically associated with masculinity. And in the eyes of American men, he believes that wearing masks runs counter to a lot of those traits. So I think that this is a very complex issue. And I think that male psychology, the current issue about politics and masks and strength and weakness has made this all way blurrier than it should be, especially when the science reveals consistently that wearing a mask reduces risk of the virus. And we know consistently that men are dying of this virus at a higher rate than women. 
And what was also really interesting that these researchers found was that in countries where wearing a face mask was mandatory, that even though guys didn't like wearing them and they expressed the same negative sentiment, they actually wore them, that there was a high level of compliance. I think that right now it's particularly challenging when we have a president and a vice president who don't properly model mask wearing behavior. Their mask wearing has been inconsistent at best. And it sends a mixed message that when the leader of the free world or leaders are not wearing a mask, a lot of people, men in particular, who look for role models, masculine role models, see that and they think, oh, I don't need to wear that. This isn't that important. And like was mentioned before, you know, there's all this talk about men attaching to traits like individualism, strength, courage, ruggedness, and this belief that wearing a mask is counter to those masculine ideals really makes men far less likely to wear a mask, which is leading to a lot more men dying from this virus. We also know that men typically, and look, I hate to generalize, but we're really looking at the psychology of gender, the psychology of men, and the psychology of women, and there are differences, whether we like it or not, and I consider myself to be a feminist and believe in equal rights, and at the same time, there are some very noticeable differences in the psychology and the statistics when it comes to this stuff. And we know that typically men don't take as good a care of their health, that they're less likely to schedule a checkup. They're more likely to miss that annual visit to the doctor, that without someone in their home reminding them to take care of their health, they do tend to let these things go. And it makes a lot of sense because when we look at the psychology of gender, men tend to view things in a hierarchy, whereas women tend to view things more collaboratively. And a lot of this has been shown in feminist studies and gender studies, and that when you view things in a hierarchy, you're always looking at who's on top, who's on bottom. So it makes it more difficult to do something as simple as asking for directions because the person who has the directions is higher up on the hierarchy because they have the information. Therefore, they have more power. So it's hard to ask for directions if you view it through that light, which is very hard for a lot of women to understand. Honey, why don't you just ask for directions? We're lost. No, I'll figure it out. So if you view things and understand things in that kind of hierarchical way, it makes more sense why men might not wear masks or even ask for directions or even go to the doctor. Because again, the doctor becomes the one with the information who's higher up in the hierarchy because they're the expert and they are in a position where they are examining the patient. Interestingly, the study also found that appealing to a man's sense of family responsibility did not increase their mask wearing. But what did help was appealing to their sense of community. A lot of men seem to feel like, hey, you don't need to tell me how to take care of my family, but they were open to being protectors of the community. So it seemed like it would be beneficial to help men understand that women, if, if, especially for heterosexual guys, obviously, that women find a man in a mask attractive. And that, you know, if you look at recently, Wonder Woman actor Chris Pine got a ton of press when he was leaving the bookstore wearing a mask, carrying a bag of books. I mean, how sexy is that? A mask and books. A guy who loves to read and takes good care of himself. I mean, what more could you possibly want? I mean, talk about sexy. 
but they're also saying that it would make a lot of sense to start having sports stars and rugged celebrities do PSAs about wearing masks or being seen and photographed wearing them. Also, getting your man a mask that has maybe their favorite sports team logo or that has a more rugged look might help improve mask wearing. I know I just bought a ton of masks that for myself that are kind of cool. I'll be posting them on, on Instagram when I get them. And you can find me at Dr. Jen Man, two ends on Jen, two ends on man. You can see my little mask expose once I once I do my my little photo shoot at home. But I think that it is of the utmost importance that we are all wearing masks. We all have to do our best to help stop the community spread of this horrible, horrible virus. I have lost too many people that are close to me and seen too many people suffer. And I'm sure many of you have too. And we need to work together as a community to make this stop. Right now, children and their families all over Southern California are going to bed hungry. Channel Q and Radio.com have an easy way for you to help feed local students and their families. All you got to do is text the word NEED to 76278 to give a buck and put food in the mouths of a hungry kid and their loved ones. Just $1 to make a big difference. Learn more about Feed Our Families on our socials at wearechannelq.com. Coming up next, I'm Dr. Jen. I'm a licensed psychotherapist sitting in for Dr. Chris while he is on vacation. When we come back from break, I'll be answering a question from a listener who is thinking about living separately from her husband in order to get more help with childcare and want to know my opinion about married couples living separately. You can bet I've got a strong opinion on that. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. You may know me from VH1 Couples Therapy or one of my books like The Relationship Fix, Dr. Jen's Six-Step Guide to Improving Communication, Connection and Intimacy, or Super Baby, 12 Ways to Give Your Child a Head Start in the First Three Years. I'll be filling in for Dr. Chris on Loveline all week long. I'll be answering your questions and offering you advice. So I got a really interesting question that I think a lot of people struggle with in general, but especially during a pandemic. This person writes and she says, and we will call her Mary. She says, Mary asks, what are your thoughts on a husband and wife living separately during the week but together for the weekends. To add some context, we're currently living in San Francisco and I recently had my first baby. I'm feeling isolated, COVID is not helping in big capital letters, and suggested to my husband that perhaps I move near family in Sacramento and he rents a room here in the Bay Area during the week. I don't feel fully confident in this idea, but I sure could use some help some outside help now that I'm a stay-at-home mom and he won't be able to relocate with his job for a few more years. So this seems like a reasonable option. Okay, Mary, right off the bat, I'm going to tell you, I do not recommend this. I think your instinct that you don't feel fully confident in the idea is right on the money. Here's why. What this will do is this will put you in a situation where your primary bond will shift from your spouse to your parents, which is not going to be good for your marriage. I've seen a lot of couples attempt to do the long distance marriage thing, and it never goes well as a long term solution. I've seen it 
both in my clinical practice as well as with my friends. And it seems like a really good idea in a way to have the best of all worlds, but inevitably it blows up and is really, really bad for the marriage. Here's what I do recommend, because it seems like you are really needing more support and more help. The first thing is have a sit down with your husband. Talk about it together, about what you can change about both of your schedules in order for you to get more support. What is he willing to do during his non-work hours? What is he willing to do during his non-work hours? What can be changed to make your life easier? It's important to try to work together as a couple to problem solve. The other thing is, is there any way for you to get help? Given that we are in a pandemic, it's obviously more complicated than ever, but I've seen some moms create a safe pod separately, doing some great quarantine, doing some testing, and then combining their pods after two weeks of doing this. And a lot of people get help from their doctor, which is what I recommend to figure out the safest way to do it. And then combining pods so that they can help one another raise their children and be less isolated. That way you can go to your friend's house, you can go to yours, but you make an agreement not to see other people outside of your pod. So the other question is, is there anyone that you know that do you have a friend, do you have a relative in your city that you might be able to do this with? The third thing is, and if you can't do either of these, or even if you can, what you may want to do, and I highly, highly recommend this, is look into some Mommy and Me programs. Most organizations are now offering them online, so you don't even have to be in the city where they're offered, although it helps if you are, especially post-pandemic. Hopefully, you can then connect with these women in person one day. But this would allow you to connect with other moms who have children at the same developmental stage as you, which is oh so important when you're a new mom. I mean, I remember when I was a new mom and I have twins, that I had two mommy and me groups. I did one was a twin mommy and me and one was just like a regular mommy and me. And those women in those groups, they were my lifeline because we were all going through the same things at the same time as our kids learned how to walk, as they were teething, all that sort of stuff. And to be able to reach out to each other and say like, oh, I was up all night with teething. Oh my God, me too. It just makes such an enormous difference in getting emotional support and also just forming those connections, because, again, it sounds like you're super isolated. And I think that at this stage in your life and motherhood, this could be a really, really valuable resource for you. The other thing is I would recommend making better use of FaceTime and Zoom by connecting with friends, not just local friends, but friends all around the country, all around the world on a day to day basis. So you don't feel quite so isolated that I would recommend literally putting it on your calendar to spend 20 minutes a day each day trying to connect with someone else. Even if you're doing it while you're feeding your baby or your baby's taking a nap, I think that this would be really helpful for you. The other thing I want you to keep in mind is that babies need to bond with their dads and dads need to bond with their babies. And this is especially important in the first three years. That is when children form their attachments and it's a crucial time. And I would hate to take your husband away from your child during these important bonding years. If you feel like you need the support of your family, which I totally get, what I would recommend is go for a visit for two to three weeks at a time. 
Consult with your pediatrician or doctor to figure out the best way to quarantine and test to make sure you don't accidentally spread the virus in case you never know. You could be asymptomatic and not know, or they could be. you got to take all the precautions. But I do not recommend that couples are apart from each other for more than three weeks at a time. So hopefully with all of this, you can come up with a solution that works for everyone. Sliding into our DMs is brought to you by Trojan Condoms. It is a big, sexy world out there, and we want you to explore it with confidence. Coming up next, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I am sitting in for Dr. Chris while he is on vacation. When we come back from this break, I'll be answering a question from a listener who wants to know what questions are appropriate to ask your cheating partner after an infidelity and what is the healthiest way to move on. Hi, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm filling in for Dr. Chris on Loveline all week long. I'll be answering your questions and offering you advice. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, you know the drill, at Dr. Jen Mann. Two ends on Jen, two ends on man. So I'm answering a question that's very interesting, and it's one I get quite a lot. Uh, this person writes, and she says, when there's been infidelity in a relationship, what is appropriate as far as asking questions about what happened? Should I expect my partner to be hesitant? Am I making it worse by bringing it up? Does there have to be a point where you just accept it and aren't allowed to bring it up anymore? What's the healthy way of dealing with this if we're trying to move on as a couple? Well, first of all, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. It's incredibly, incredibly painful to experience that kind of betrayal. And when an affair has occurred in the relationship, the level of trust is irrevocably changed. That said, many couples are able to do the emotional and psychological work that it takes to forgive and move forward with their relationship. The couples who tend to do it best are those that work with a professional they have to grieve the loss of the marriage as they have known it and hoped it to be, develop trust, make better boundaries with outside people, have better communication with one another, and learn to nurture the connection in the relationship. And I'm going to hit on that again later as I talk about this, but that is such a key point. Knowing sexual details and specifics about activities that your partner did with this other person is likely only to trigger you. Asking those questions are not to your benefit. In terms of risky, in terms of risk of sexually transmitted diseases, you should assume the worst, get tested, and take appropriate precautions. Beyond that, you don't need to know the sexual details. I get why your partner is hesitant to answer certain questions since he or she has got to know that this is going to upset you. And I, do, I really do recommend that you work with the therapist to help you set appropriate boundaries for both of you. This does need to be talked through. You can't just sweep it under the rug and forget about it when you say, like, how long am I allowed to talk about it? It's an understandable question. I always recommend that my clients in this situation limit their talk about the infidelity to discussing it only during a couple session, especially in the beginning. It's just such a button pusher and emotions are running high. And I just don't recommend the partners talk about it alone without any guidance of a professional at home. That tends to be a disaster. There are a few things that I want for you to keep in mind. And I mentioned earlier in this show the, the four R's. 
of apology. And I think that that's really, those are important. You, you know, you need to have your partner make amends to you, but it sounds like that has probably already taken place given the questions that you're asking. So I want for you to keep these three things in mind. One, observe your partner over time. It takes time and good behavior to rebuild the trust and create a sense of safety that's required to have an intimate relationship. You know, it's patterns of good, consistent behavior that creates that sense of security that we need to open up, connect and be vulnerable again, which is crucial for a romantic relationship to work. The second is examine what made the relationship vulnerable. It's really easy to just say, he's the villain and, villain. He's the villain and I am the victim. But what you really need to look at if you really want to make this marriage work is what was going on in the relationship that left him vulnerable to having an affair. It's never the victim's fault when a partner has an affair. If the relationship is not working, a person can always get out or ask for a separation instead of having an affair. That said, cheating generally does not happen in a vacuum. There's usually a problem in the relationship leading up to the affair. Typically, it takes two to tango. It's important not only to look at your contribution, it's important to look at your contribution in an unhealthy system in order to make sure that you don't recreate it in the future in your relationship. The third thing is create connection. And I cannot emphasize this enough. Connection is the greatest vaccination against infidelity. Studies show that a lack of connection is the number one reason why people, irrespective of gender, cheat. There will always be someone who's younger, hotter, thinner, perkier, fitter, or better endowed. But if you are nurturing a sense of connection with your partner, striving to make them feel loved and adored and providing something unique that no one else can provide overnight or provide it the way you do, you have a home court advantage. And that thing that you have to provide is connection. And obviously, it is a two way street. It's not all on you. Don't get me wrong. But both of you have to create that in your marriage. It can be particularly difficult when You've been hurt by an infidelity, but that is the foundation that you have to lay down in what is now going to be your new marriage post-fidelity. Coming up next, I'm Dr. Jen, sitting in for Dr. Chris while he is on vacation. When we get back from this break, I'll be answering a question from a 28-year-old virgin who broke up with her boyfriend who does not know that she's a virgin because she's worried about something very interesting, and it's not what you think it is. I'll be right back. Hi there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and I'll be filling in for Dr. Chris on Loveline all week. I'll be answering your questions and offering you advice. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Snapchat at Dr. Jen Mann, two ends on Jen, two ends on man. You can find information about how to email me your questions there as well. So I'm gonna answer a question, a very interesting question. Uh, this person writes, Hi, Dr. Jen Mann. I'm 28 years old, recently dated a 40-year-old man. He's a dialysis patient where my dad works and was very attached to me. I broke up with him out of fear he would, be, he would keep doing too much to be in my life. He bought me an iPad, would pick me up at work, and do a lot to show me that he cared, 
but I'm worried because I'm a virgin and he does not know that. Would I be wrong to get back with him even though I'm not playing it safe? I worry that I will be codependent. So this is a really interesting question. And I kind of am getting the feeling that you're getting rid of this guy because he's being really kind and generous to you. It sounds like he's really going out of his way to do sweet things and to support you and to make your life easier, picking up from work, getting you an iPad. And it can't help me. And I can't help but wonder if maybe you have some issues around emotional intimacy, maybe it feels uncomfortable to have someone in your life who is making it easier and trying to be close to you and that maybe this is unfamiliar or uncomfortable for you. If you're concerned that he doesn't know that you're a virgin and it sounds like you plan to stay that way, which is that's cool. That's what your thing is and that's what you want to do. All good. But just talk to him about it. And don't just run away. It doesn't make sense to run away when someone is being kind and caring and loving. And it sounds like he's being all of those things. And I would hate for you to lose the opportunity to have a relationship with someone who sounds like they're really sweet and nice. You know, you mentioned that you're worried about being codependent, which I think is really interesting. I would recommend that you work on making boundaries with him. You can always just say no to a gift or to help. But I can't help but wonder if you're just scared about getting close to someone again. You know, it just seems like he's trying to be supportive and generous. And if you're worried about issues of codependence and that's something in your history, then I would recommend working on that in your own individual work, whether it's through reading, through therapy, journaling, insight work, whatever it is that you do to work on your thought. And if you don't do anything, then I think it's time to start. Because look, wherever you go, there you are. And if that's an issue that you have, it will follow you into any relationship that you are in. I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm a licensed psychotherapist. You can catch me tomorrow and all week long filling in for Dr. Chris here on Loveline. Follow us on Instagram at Dr. Jen Mann, two ends on Jen, two ends on man, and at Loveline. Also catch our podcast after every show on radio.com. Thanks for tuning in. I'll be back tomorrow to answer all of your questions.